I'm not a preacher, and I'm not drunk. I'm just a politician. Everybody, come out of your houses. Clarence Hillian is going to make you a super human being. Welcome back to Crackpot Cinema, our eighth venture into podcast magnificence. My name is Mike McPadden. I'm the author of Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. Joining me in Los Angeles is Aaron Lee, uh, writer and producer for shows like Family Guy and Superstore. Welcome back, Mr. Lee. So, uh, Thank you. First things first, last last week, uh, I thought last week's show was really good. I really like this double feature format, so I think we're going to stick with that going forward, uh, you know, I, with, with some exceptions. But Can, uh, I, can I tell you yeah. something about last week, Mike, yeah. real quick? Please. I used different headphones last week that I had a little trouble with, I, I and I didn't hear you the whole time. And, and there was a joke you made that killed me. I, I oh. said, oh, I thought Studs Terkel wrote a book about <laughs> sex. And you said, Studs Terkel fucking. And I didn't hear you say that. So, so when I was listening, I was like, oh, that's hilarious. So I went Thank back you. to the old headphones. That, okay, so, good. Yeah. So, you, yeah, so now I won't wanna, miss a second. You don't want to miss any Bon Mots like that one. Uh, yeah, a diamond slips <laughs> yeah. through once in a while. Yeah. Fucking. Studs Terkel. Studs Terkel fucking. <laughs> Studs Terkel. <laughs> Three words you never wanted to hear back to back. In you your know, life. I used to see him around Chicago uh, when I first moved here. You'd see him waiting for the bus in his bright God. red flannel Buffalo chick uh, shirt, his pants pulled up. And yeah. Okay, here would be my, remember League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? You know, sure. Let's get all the fictional. Yeah. This would be mine. Right. Let's maybe, <laughs> uh, let's just forget the podcast this week. Just write this movie. All you right. and me. It's time. Studs Terkel. Mike Royko, Gene Siskel, oh. Roger Ebert, <laughs> like the 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 gang yeah. fighting crimes in Chicago in 1979. Well, he's a, did you ever hear of Irv Cups in it? No, Cup? I don't know Irv. Okay, so no, Cup was his name. So Cup was as big as as any of those guys. I mean, not Siskel Ebert because they were on the, but Cup had a TV show called like Cups World or something like in the 60s and 70s, the local Chicago PBS. But he was like a Mike Royko, but not funny like Mike Royko. He was, he was, but he was another like you know, uh, socket to you, good you know, columnist that everybody loved. And he's he was still in. alive. He's yeah, no, Cup would have to be there. He's on the team. He's on the team. Let's let's write that movie. We have to. And another fascinating thing in my adopt uh, regarding my adopted hometown here is uh, the Loop was just like Forty Second Street. Had these insane theaters. The Chicago Theater is still open. Uh, and I've seen, like, listings. There's some Twitter account. I'll try to find it and credit them. They occasionally will say, this week on the loop, this week on the deuce. And, you know, often, not always, but often, the, the loop will just kick ass over the deuce on what was available that given week in, like, 1978 or 1981, you know. Huh. And uh, it's just there was nobody doing the work is my thing. It's like there was no Bill Landis out there. Right. Yeah. Which, which makes you wonder, like, was it even more awesome in your head? You can't help but go like, oh, wow. What? Because they it was just pure. They were just purely doing it. You know? Yeah. What was going yeah. on in those grindhouse theaters? Yeah. 
That I sounds will, amazing. Yeah, I'll send you the story. And I'll post uh, the Martin Bilheimer, who's a terrific Chicago writer that I have uh, come to know through Christina Ward of Feral House. He wrote a little tribute to the old uh, Loop Theaters. That's really, really good. And I'm gonna, I'll put that on our page and share it on our social media, and then have to send it to you because you won't come on our social media. So. <laughs> that's right. Uh, social media is is evil. I will have nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, yeah. But so, unfortunately, there's a lot of downsides to that. The the greatest <laughs> one so far, though, is that you did not see everyone come out of the social media war- woodwork in defense of John Frankenheimer's prophecy. I didn't see it, so I don't believe it. I don't believe it happened. <laughs> I have the link. Uh, you're, you're lying. You're I lying. That can't the be. Link. Nope, that can't uh, be. In the course of, I don't know. Oh, we got to, pro- uh, Frankenheimer was going to direct uh, Bloodline. But passed to work on uh, Prophecy, a film I dismissed as a piece of diarrhea, and <laughs> you agreed with me. Oh, yeah. And I said, and here's the problem now with today's horror fans, is that no matter how terrible a movie is, just like, and, and Prophecy fact is terrible. It's like, it's not, we're not debating. Um, people will come out in droves to tell you what an incredible film it is, how it changed their lives, how what it means to them. So I... Uh, Posted on Facebook, uh, you know, just a little message about this is the situation. My my podcast partner Aaron Lee claims that no one will come out and claim Prophecy is a good film, and I have ninety four comments in favor of Prophecy, <laughs> telling you, yeah, but those are some all people really mad at me for calling it a piece of diarrhea, like really. <laughs> But really yeah, th- those people are bots. They're Russian bots <laughs> sent to divide us, oh, Mike. Is that true? It's part of the operation to pit us against oh, each other sure. and destroy our podcast. Yes. Would that hap- would that also include the director's daughter who chimed uh, in? Oh. Uh oh well now I lost it. I gotta find her name. But I, I did send you this. Ah, oh, Chris yes. the 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 terrific uh highly um, opinionated and correctly so, Christy Frankenheimer, who just wrote pure vodka fueled crap in regard to <laughs> her father's so 1979 awesome. film. Yeah, now that's it. That's, that's that's the coolest thing to come out of this podcast so far. Of the many cool things, that, that's got to <laughs> be the coolest array. We have a new, that's a new bar to try to sail over. That is great. But she's agreeing with you and me. Yeah, yeah she's so on I our think side. she's a she's unifier. Not one of the 94, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And then Aunt Timpson, who's a uh, big uh, figure in uh, insane film world, he wrote, was Aaron the same dude who did that hilariously opinionated Asian zine back in the 90s? Oh, and, no. Uh, what was that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. I said, no, huh. Aaron published Blue Persuasion, and he just wrote Cross Wires. Gotcha. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am often, uh, with my last name, mistaken uh, for being Asian. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I bet Christopher Lee went through that quite a bit. Robert E. Oh, yeah. Robert E. <laughs> People were baffled when he showed up that's on the why battlefield. That's why in 2000 like, Maniacs, kidding. that's why he broke a musket across his knee, like the theme song says. <laughs> he was so angry. Yeah. So, uh, this week, uh, bringing it up to date, we're going to do uh, The Fan and Der Fan. So these are two uh, films about obsessed admirers of 
celebrities. Uh, one, a movie actress turned musical stage performer. The other, a German New Wave pop star. And uh, so in terms of our thumbs up, thumb down, I was uh, thinking so. <laughs> now, usually, you, you, naturally, the natural order of things is that the good should go first, but I was thinking we'll do okay. the bad first. So I was thinking stink for bad okay. or stan for good. Ooh, stink oh, that's or stan. really good. <clears throat> that's really good. That's great. I had. Um, I had uh, fantastic. Okay. You know, uh, no, but or fan the air with your hand because this movie stinks so fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like stink or stan is a little punchier. A yeah, little. stink or stan is what we'll do. But rest assured, we will be waving our hands through the air because sure. it stinks. it'll be like you know, open the windows, please. Sure. Yeah. Let's do. Let's let's deal with this. So. Uh, let's just jump right in. The Fan from 1981. Uh, Lauren Bacall. This is a movie. Um, I saw the trailer for The Fan at the Georgetown Theater in Brooklyn, where it ran before I saw Hardly Working, the, the last oh, wow. <laughs> big Jerry Lewis theatrical release, which at that time was the worst film I had ever sat through in a theater. <laughs> and, you know, still, yeah. still, you know, resides in that rarefied company and uh it had an opening crawl that i could not find anywhere online like it was just like tight like typewritten letters and it just said like you know the fan is a based on is a work of fiction you may think it was about uh the murder of john lennon which had just happened five months before the movie came right out. and uh but it's not you know we we made this last year and uh we hope uh this helps society deal with whatever they have to deal with Wow, that was the trailer. That the was trailer before had that the trailer. Yeah. So Amazing. here's the thing. So then there was a, I noticed there was an older kid from my school named Vincent, who uh, and this was a kid, <laughs> the the type of Brooklyn I grew up in. He was 13 years old, but at this point he had looked like a like a desk sergeant from a police precinct since he was like six, and he out loud read the crawl, and I'm still <laughs> annoyed over this. So I don't know his last name or anything, but I think wow. about him a lot. Anytime I think of the fan, which is a lot, it turns out. Um, so we should, all, you know, beyond the John Lennon thing, we should talk about just the, the cultural moment uh, that had been going yeah. on. So so the world was still reeling from John, John uh, Lennon. The previous summer, Do Dorothy Stratton had been murdered by her crazy husband uh, on March 30th. So the fan opened May 15th on March 30th. John Hinckley tried to impress Jodie Foster by shooting Ronald Reagan. And then two days before the fan opened, the Pope got shot. So, yeah. so this was a, you know, a frying pan of human existence for this piece of grease to land on and just splatter everywhere. Um, so uh, I'll just say right away, I, uh, I've seen the fan like five times. I've just watched. This was the first time on Blu-ray. Because it was on New York, on Channel 11 in New York, a lot. And I ended up watching it a lot. How uh, did I miss it? How did I miss it on cable? How did I miss it on Channel 11? I mean, I was I, I, like, I, that's, I don't know how I had never seen this movie. And I'd always been fascinated by it. So I, I don't know how I missed it. I'm rather stunned. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I, and 
the re- I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I watched it, but really, the big one is the the end of the movie is just so flabbergastingly fantastic to me. Man, I, I mean, I'm gonna say the whole thing's pretty fantastic. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, yeah, I am a, I am a fan. The fan stand is what I'm gonna yes, say. Yes, <laughs> me too. And and just this movie, by the way, was just not what I expected at all. Having heard about it and read right. about it for years, and um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I was I was really into this one. Good, good, good. So some background here. Initially developed as a vehicle for Elizabeth Taylor. Interestingly enough, who we had done an episode on. Yep. Uh, to- <laughs> and did you, and did you see who the director was? Yes, I did. I was just getting to that. Yeah. yeah. Jeff Lieberman, director of Squirm, Blue Sunshine, Just Before Dawn, Remote Control, and and all those are uh, interesting films. All of them are CMs, as Danny would Peary would put in the back of Guide for the Film Fanatic Cult Movies. Uh, as is a movie he made in 2004. And I want to say, this is a film I despise. And the idea that anybody could defend this or tell me that they had an entertaining time with this, it's called Satan's Little Helper. Have you ever seen this oh, okay. thing? No, never seen that one. Whatever you made at age 15 with a camcorder is 10 billion times I can't even think of the word <laughs> more competent. Uh, I was trying to think of the, the the better the best synonym for better, and I just can't. Anyway, Satan's Little Helper is appalling, uh, but unfortunately, you know, we didn't get to. I would have liked to in, in another universe we get Elizabeth well, Taylor and Jeff Lieberman to collaborate. Let's uh, let's I I, I want to let's put that one on social media. No one can say anything good about this, so oh, that uh, no, Andrea I, Lieberman will come out of the woods and. <laughs> And call no, no, it tequila, tequila no. powered. <laughs> Satan's little helper is a genuine CM with a following. It's the fucking worst. Uh, okay. So then, um, the original director was supposed to be Waris Hussein, who was a TV director, and it's interesting because he his his two theatrical films. Or actually, one was a TV movie, but he directed the Possession of Joel Delaney. Which is a good movie, and uh, the Liz and Dick TV movie, divorce his, divorce hers, and it's interesting because that combination makes him like the ideal candidate to direct the fan. Those no, two, and movies. not to mention the Copacabana CBS TV. Oh movie. man, that, that puts him in. That was pretty good experience for this too. I would. Say. Did we ever watch that in my house? Yeah, because uh, you know my brother was three years old. Uh, Barry Manilow was at the peak of his powers. Uh, and uh, the summer that Copacabana was out, and uh, my brother created a thing called the Barry Manilow Club. And uh, <laughs> the way you could tell, the, the code word, like how you could tell somebody was in the club, if you saw somebody and you thought, ah, he might be in the club, you would, you would yell at them, hey, Barry, where are you? And then they would pantomime, they would lift their arms and then pantomime washing themselves under their arms and go, I'm here in the tub taking a bath. <laughs> so that's been family legend. So Copacabana was a big event in the McPadden household when that it was like '86, I think '85, '86. Um, Boy, it's currently a huge song with my daughters. By the way, Copacabana oh. gets a lot of play in uh, our household now. Damn, it's epic. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It's good. Yeah. It's a good. It's a good song. It's oh, a pretty it's amazing. The best. Song. That, I'm a, I am a fan of. I am a fan of. Yeah, big time. Uh, 
So uh, produced by Robert Stigward, the great rock and roll impresario who managed Cream and the Bee Gees and produced uh, the Broadway hits Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. Then in film, uh, best known for producing Saturday Night Fever and Grease, but also did Jesus Christ Superstar Tommy and Bugsy Malone. And that, I mean, that, you know, that's a murderer's row of yeah, man. Yeah, he's rock musicals yeah. there. Who I, I just, I love the, every one of those movies. Um, but then I was thinking, so then he, so he's got Grease in 1978, which is the biggest of all the hits. But it's a hell of a sight, 1978, for Robert Stigwood. He's coming off yeah. Saturday Night Fever. He, Grease comes out in June. Then he has Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in July, which was, uh, you know, critically lambasted, actually made a little bit of money and generated a hit soundtrack. But then he's going to wa- wrap up the year December 22nd, moment by moment with John Travolta and Lily Tomlin, which is a film we are definitely going to talk about at some point. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, we and have And it's to. like, Merry Christmas, Mr. Stigwood. Uh, he also produced there's, there's, uh, Times Square, which was a bomb, but is a cult classic. Yeah. There's a documentary about him now, right? Stigwood? I don't know, but let's. Uh, that's a must. Yeah, I got to track that. I think that there down. is. I, I'm. I'm. I think. I think I'd noticed because I watched the Alan Carr one, but I don't think I've watched the Stigwood one yet. I but, love the yeah, Alan he's... Carr one. Yeah, I read, the, I read the Alan Carr book too, and I would read a Stigwood book. So please write that. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So then, and and he's the. Oh, oh, go ahead. I, I mean, I was going to say he's the one who supposedly said add all the gore, right? Like make yes, it violent, yes. make it a slash. They, they, he saw Dress to Kill and how that was slaying at the box office. And he made them, after they finished shooting, they had to go back and shoot in all the, uh, add in all the gore scenes. Um, so in 81, he produced uh, Gallipoli, the World War One Australian drama. Uh, uh, with Mel Gibson, which is an amazing movie. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's so funny. That's like um in my head as a, a, a you know us. Talk, that's a very sneak previews movie. Too. Oh, a hundred thousand percent. Yeah. That's a that and Breaker Morant are the like the epitome of like <laughs> completely you know, something that Siskel and Ebert gave a good review. I, I, as a kid, was like, I must see Gallipoli. So Absolutely. I, you know, and Break Marine. And waited and for it to come on TV. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, that was so. that, that Australian, that moment that turned the 80s moment of, like, the Australian new wave. It was the last wave. Yeah. Uh, Picnic and Hanging yeah, Rock Peter from a couple, years, yeah, a couple years earlier. Yeah. And then Mad Max and Road Warrior. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. I guess the crowning achievement. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he had Gallipoli and then uh, The Fan, which came out and bombed pretty quick. And the movies he produced after The Fan were Grease 2. And this is, okay, When I, 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 I'm i going to ease up on the young folk, but please don't anybody go on and on about how Grease 2 is far superior to Grease, which is now like the reigning millennial mindset. This is ludicrous to okay. me. Uh, yeah. Staying Alive, the Saturday Night Fever sequel, <laughs> and uh, wow. Evita, which is which I really liked. I thought Evita was really good, directed by Alan Parker. Yes, actually reminded me of The Wall, also directed by Alan Parker. I thought this is this is a really good rock opera, uh, and this was the right director for it. Um, so the fan wow. he hired uh, Edward Bianchi, who came out of TV commercials, most notably the famous David Norton dancing Be a Pepper campaign for Dr Pepper. <laughs> And on the uh, and, Blu-ray extras, did you watch any of the extras, the interviews or anything? 
Yeah, yeah, I did. So, yeah, apparently, yeah, Betty Bacall was just referred to him as Dr. Pepper. I would say, get <laughs> get me Dr. Pepper. And apparently treated everyone like shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. was just mean Unpleasant. and nasty to yeah. everyone. Yeah. Michael Bean painted a very, vi- like, vivid picture where he's like, well, you know, I'm excited. I get a bunch of flowers for Miss Bacall, and I go, and she's talking to James Garner, and they're smoking cigarettes. And they, like, you can just see them, like, puffing away. And sure. he's like, Miss Bacall, it's an honor. I'm going to be working with you. And she's like, thank you. And handed the flowers to an assistant. Went back to finishing her lucky strike with with Jimmy Garner. <laughs> so, uh, Bianchi, he, this is interesting. He directed the dancing title sequence of every season of The Cosby Show. Yeah. Off his choreography for That's the right, fan. That's right, the fan. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Showed his skill. And, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and back to staying alive for a minute, I was going to say, so, so the fan ends with this astounding Broadway production. And uh, have you ever seen Staying Alive? Yes. So, you know, that yes, and, it's like Stigwood did not learn from the fan that he was not going to pull <laughs> off this impossibly tasteless and insane, uh, you know, show-stopping Broadway musical. And, but- go ahead. Not and not to jump to talking about the end of the movie, but but God love them that they even tried. I was like, this is so unnecessarily ambitious. It's multiple music musical numbers. It's, it's a, like it, it's crazy that they even tried with, with. And I guess it's the songs are Marvin Hamlish and Tim Rice. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah. like all they had to do was cut in the theater from a distance to see a shot of people dancing to, with no lyrics for two seconds to sell. But no, we're going to see the whole yes. musical. Well, let's and get, we're, well, we're going to make there. Lauren yes. Bacall sing. Yes, oh my let's God. get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Bianchi's only other movie is often running a comedy with uh, Cindy Lauper as a mermaid-themed lounge singer on the run from the mob from 91. Uh, Sounds fun. Yeah, I was thinking about the reality of, of sitting through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, no. Uh, based on the 1977 novel The Fan, which I think I kind of remember, like in supermarkets and what have you. Uh, yes. Which, and both, it, both of these movies today were based off of, like, I, I, I noticed, like, the, the apparently the paperback novel was like it's a collection of letters to right, right. to the star and yes. that's what Durfan is also right. both and, and like epistolary know. that's a word I yes. learned word I've read and probably used incorrectly my entire life I looked it up this week yeah uh, so yeah the author of that book uh, he also co-wrote Zorro the Gay Blade which was a more successful 1981 oh. film yeah <laughs> Which, what was that? God, sh- did I see? Th- what was that? I saw that a movie? thousand times. Oh, fucking Joker! That was uh, the best. The, the funniest thing in Joker uh, is that the Wayne family, in the midst of the riot, <laughs> targeting rich people, done up full black tie furs, goes out to like the shittiest Times Square theater to see Zorro the gay blade. <laughs> Then they That's see the great. riot and go, hey, let's go down this, this let's turn this corner into uh, this little district known as Crime Alley. So uh, That's great. Nominated for Best Picture this year, you fucking imbeciles. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, Laura Bacall, she was actually, she was at a high point in her career and, and in her sort of public persona and perception at the time. Um, she, uh, March 29th, had opened in the Broadway musical, the big, splashy Broadway musical, Woman of the Year, by uh, John Kander and Fred Ebb, who had done Cabaret. It was a huge hit, and uh, she, Betty, as I will only refer to her, because that's her real name, uh, Betty Bacall won the Tony for Best Lead Actress in a Musical. And she couldn't sing, but that was part of the charm of it, was that she was singing regardless. And her mm-hmm. big, one of her big numbers was called I'm One of the Boys. And, uh, and that was always on the commercials, like, I'm just one of the girls who's one of the boys. Mm-hmm. And the, every year in New York, I don't know if they still do it, but there was like a musical comedy review called uh, Forbidden Broadway that would spoof whatever had opened in the past Broadway season. Like, it would run through the summer and what have you. And um, I remember hearing one of the songs, they're, they're one of the boys spoof, and it killed me. And it was just, it was, you know... Somebody dressed as Lauren Bacall going, I'm just one of the girls who sounds like a boy because I'm really a boy, which killed me. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking watching this. She's 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 kind of like the female William Shatner. Like, it, it, you know, like a, she clearly had a more a more distinguished career. But yeah, but I, I, I forgot about right. Like. She, she had that affectionate period here, and then towards the end, she was on Family Guy and The Sopranos, like spoofing yeah. herself. You, you know, so so even hearing about her yelling at every being uh, yeah. being a nightmare on the set made me think of my own experience. I've I've told you of William Shatner shouting at me. You know, yes. the classic recording booth. You say sabotage, I say sabotage. Uh, so so it was it was I gotta say it's fun to watch her in this movie. Okay, but tell it's us, fun so to watch. The, you gotta tell us the William Shatner story. Uh, at at his at his roast at the William Shatner roast, we were doing a an opening sketch where he was on the phone with Leonard Nimoy and and he <laughs> it's 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 so long time, but in the process of trying to get him to do this bit, I had to show him how to hang up the phone. And he lost it on me. And he was like, you think I don't know how to hang up a phone? I've been acting for 50 years. I know how to hang up a phone. You know, and yeah. and I'm and I'm standing there as he's blowing up at me. And I was like over the moon because yeah. it was one of those moments in my entertainment industry career where I was like, I have crossed over. I have become the guy in the booth getting yelled at. You say <laughs> yeah, sabotage. Right. I, I was like in heaven. Like, yeah. this is amazing. And. And the next day I went to the producer, I was like, you've got to give me the video of that. Cause I, cause the cameras were rolling and he said, absolutely not that you will oh. never have that. It, it's <laughs> yeah. the heartbreak of my life that that's in a vault somewhere like Shatner blowing. And then, and I have to say that was the, that was a late shoot. He was tired and he was an absolute delight. He was just, he was awesome the entire rest of the time. But that was why my one great Shatner blew up at me moment. And then there's a, a great follow-up so story that I always loved that it, it just fills my heart. Uh, you were working <laughs> on something else later, like a year or so later, and Shatner yes. walked up to you and just kind of did a double take and said, we meet again. He came up behind me, oh, and I even, heard it in my okay, ears. That's so, great. Yeah. Oh, that's so better, we meet yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, it was great. great. And I was, yeah. yeah, oh my God, he's the best. And then your, then your daughter, uh, Claudia, developed a crush on, on William Shatner. 
And I yeah yeah. And she, I remember she wrote him a card that said, "I love you, Will Shot," and asked you to give it to him <laughs> when she was a little girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 Bacall is just as fun to watch and just yeah. as hammy. And and what I love through this entire movie is you can you really can see the contempt in her eyes for everyone around her, <laughs> other than you certainly can. other than. Other than Garner and Maureen Stapleton, she clearly loves them and enjoys them and hates everyone else and looks looks at them with total contempt. It's great. Yeah. Um, So the movie, so as we discussed earlier, Stigwood insisted that it needed gore. He wanted in on the dress to kill box. I was also wondering, like, you think he saw Maniac? Before this came out, because the attack on Maureen Stapleton reminded me of Maniac in the subway. I could totally see that. I could totally see that. I mean, it's funny because when I was looking this up online, they always say, oh, he saw the success of Friday the 13th and Dress to Kill. It's yeah. just Dress to Kill. It's clearly. Yeah, clearly, yes. It's it's Pino DiNaggio doing this soundtrack just like in Dress to Kill. It's right. just a Dress to Kill variation. Yeah. But I do like to Although, imagine Stigwood crossing the women against pornography picket lines in Times Square to go catch Joe Spinell and Maniac. <laughs> I totally believe it. And although, and I will say this Friday the 13th, this is one of those small pleasures watching a movie like this. When you see that old Paramount logo come up, aren't you just aren't you just like, okay, it's time for a good time? Oh, like if it's yeah. like a 1980 yeah. Paramount movie, forget Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. It just it's kick like, back because it's, it's going to be yeah. great. Absolutely. Um, so she was 56 during filming. And when the movie came out, she did tell People magazine that she was extremely displeased. Uh, the quote, the fan is much more graphic and violent than when I read the script. The movie I wanted to make had more to do with what happens to the life of the woman and less blood and gore. Yeah. And, and we were having this discussion about Audrey Hepburn. That was, yeah, that's week. what immediately came to mind. And I think that I think you, you're right. I think you nailed it. You always ask yourself, are they lying or not? And I think she's probably telling the truth. I think they oh, probably said, yeah, goose yeah. it up, make the attacks more violent. Yeah. And 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 the book was... And by the way, the script for this movie is is pretty good. It's really a... It's it's a decent script. It really is. And, I, and has yeah. funny lines and, yeah. and is smart. So I, I can see that she got suckered in by a, a good script. And, uh, and then they... Yeah, and then they added some... Really, really tame scenes. That, but, but uh, that, I mean, yeah, really not that violent. But for the time, but yes, for the I time, that's the thing. It's be. like I remember us talking like in the nineties, like watching the X Files, where we'd be like, "My God, this is like like a Luigi Cozzi movie or something." The amount of yes. gore, and that now is twenty five years ago. So we're not, yes. you know, we're just so numb to blood and guts. And but, uh, well, didn't you feel, did you feel bad? You mentioned that Maureen Stapleton scene yeah. where, it, like, comparing it to Maniac, yeah. I did laugh. Like, I was like, the idea that Maureen Stapleton had to have this much fake blood put on her face is oh, just like, what an awful thing to ask yeah. this wonderful yeah. actress. Like, okay, we're going to spray this on your face. It's just. Yeah, it is. Who was really, in route uh, to winning uh, the tasteless. Academy Award for playing Emma Goldman in Reds the exact same year? Yes. Which uh, actually, I should say, the fan—that <laughs> uh, was the first of her 1981 movies. The Reds came last, 
And uh, the one in the middle is one that we are definitely, we have to do a show on. Uh, the Gary Coleman racetrack opus on the right track, where he lives in a uh, I, locker in the bus station. <laughs> that is so fucking weird you mentioned that. I swear to God, you and I were talking about guests for the show. And yeah. I, I swear that movie popped in my head for a certain guest, who, who I don't want to name. I don't want any yeah, surprises, yeah. but right, that's well, we're crazy make it that you said that. So, so now, now we have to. Make we have it to. Uh, her name but, is Mary the Bag Lady, in that movie. But, by the way, and, and that is, and that you know, is one of the all for me one of the all time greatest Mad Magazine gags was inspired by that movie, uh, where they parody Gary Coleman, who of course was so short, right. You know, living in the terminal, and there's a panel where he's taking a shower in the terminal and a guy is explaining to him uh gary what you call a shower we call a urinal and he's <laughs> standing a urinal with the funny scrub brush with his little butt out Bubbles. i mean yeah, yeah I yes <laughs> murdered me murdered and stuck with me for decades but um so yeah so and then james garner garner and uh he uh, was 52 uh he and Benny Bacall had worked on Robert Altman's Health, which uh, I remember all the controversy surrounding that was shot in 1979. It wasn't released until 82. Then it came out and everybody was like, ew, boo. <laughs> uh, including President Ronald Reagan, who supposedly screened Health at Camp David and in his diary called it the world's worst movie. Funny. I didn't know that. That's good. I've never seen Health. Have you? No, I never have. I was somehow but boy, put off by the reviews of it. I just, I was like, I don't know. Yeah. But boy, does Garner not give a shit in this movie. The, 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 there's only two really good performances in this movie, which are Stapleton and Michael Bean. Right. And uh, I'm saying that right, right? Or is it Bean? Yeah, it's Bean. I've never no, known. it's Bean. It's Bean. Yeah. 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 That, those, yes. And Garner, wow, does he, is he just checking his watch and everything, <laughs> you know? But at the same time... When you talk about the script, I loved his relationship with Betty Bacall. They seem well, completely believable. They love each other. Right. They, they love, you can tell. You yeah. can tell they're both like, we're in this together, kid. And <laughs> we got to get to five o'clock. And his kind of casual, like, I'm hitting the bar as soon as the, the, the yell cut, really lends itself to the character and the movie. He's so lovable. Uh, we talked about that. He's one of those guys, like, we were talking about Ben Gazzara last yeah. week. Like, Garner, you're you're just in for a good time. And he has that Robert Mitchum thing of, yeah. like, not giving a fuck, you know? Yeah, and and he so he's sort of, he's between, I'll tell you exactly who he is. He's right in the middle between John Ritter and Robert Mitchum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. He's so great. Um, And then Bean, Michael Bean, who I've, I've always kind of thought was just a zilch. Like he just seemed like he's a blank yeah. slate, but he does a really good job here. He was very he's good here. He's great. Yeah, yeah, he really is. He really sells it. It's he's really great. Um, yeah. So he, his pre-fan career leading up to this, he's the guy that uh, Travolta slugs in the stomach while they're playing basketball in Greece, which is hilarious. Uh, he's the team captain and the romantic lead in the Kathy Lee Crosby High School basketball comedy Coach. Did you ever see that? No. Oh, I've, I've seen Coach about a thousand times. Uh, and he's the star of the Canucksploitation comedy Hog Wild, which had that great Jack Davis oh. poster. Yeah, movie I was I, I was fascinated by as a kid. They advertised it a lot in upstate New York. Uh, 
I and uh, with a great animated commercial of a pig. It, it was a parody of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Did you ever see that? No, but you've described it to me. I never saw yeah. it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's okay. a pig coming down on a UFO over the Close Encounters horizon image, and just said "Hog Wild" coming through and with no no clip from the movie. So as a kid, I was like, <laughs> "What is this movie? Is it animated? It's it, right. like I gotta see Hog Wild." But and still have not seen it. You oh, you have? Though, I have right? seen it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, Tony Rosato from SCTV and SNL. Right who I think died in the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. He plays the leader of this biker gang who only grunts and makes nonsense sounds. And it's a hilarious performance. He's really good. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, he, and, uh, he is one of the, the few to make the leap from SETV to SNL. Wow. And, and Bean was in Hogwild also. He was the hero, yes. That's crazy. He was yeah, like, he like drops out of military school, as I recall, and runs afoul of this biker gang. Yeah, it's good. Um, so the plot is uh, Lauren Bacall plays Sally Ross, the aging movie star. She's making her Broadway musical debut, much like uh, Lauren Bacall, although she had been on, in applause on Broadway in the 70s, uh, but had this big Broadway comeback in, in the early 80s. Uh, Maureen Stapleton is her assistant. Uh, James Garner is the ex-husband. And then Bean is... Uh, the psycho killer who is obsessed with Lauren, with Sally Ross, Sally Ross, who, who in her first life. show, yeah. and in her first show in the movie, you see the marquee, and I love that the the show was Sally Ross in It's Called Tomorrow, and, and that <laughs> yeah. and that title just with her character just sounded like It's Called Tomorrow, idiot. Yeah, like you right. yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a great yeah. bitchy yeah. title. Totally, yeah, Miss Ross. When would you like your cleaning delivered? <laughs> it's called tomorrow. It's called tomorrow. <laughs> so great uh, I also I love any uh, early 80s New York City location shooting that was when I was you know oh, 12, boy. 13, 14 like just starting to explore the city by myself it's always a, a joy to see that uh, one thing I've never got to go to in my life was the Wienerwald or the Wienerwald in Times Square the giant German bratwurst restaurant uh, that closed before I was able to get there. And I, I always, uh, bittersweet looking at that giant sign there. And uh, we talk about these New York lake locations in these movies, especially kind of slasher, you know, kind of yeah. late 70s that would shoot around New York. And this movie is a real treat because it's it's Broadway theater New York, yeah. like yeah, yeah. which you don't always get in, the, in these movies. No, you, you know? certainly don't. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's the joy of this movie in general. It's like, I think particularly for me as a kid, my dad worked in theater, so I grew up, you know, around actors and hearing the chorus line soundtrack, and I've always had this love-hate relationship with that stuff. And sure. Mostly, mostly just love it, but it's yeah. also disgusting. And and that's the, that is the most fun thing about this movie is, yeah. is that it's in... Yeah, it's great. It's really fun to see those New York locations. Yeah, and this was right around, I remember in 1981, I saw uh, two Broadway shows. I saw Barnum with Jim Dale and Glenn Close. Jim Dale is the leader of the Carry On Gang, uh, the British comedian. And then I saw the Pirates of Penzance with Peter Noon and uh, Jim Belushi as the Pirate King. Wow. Who was really funny. I got to say, he was hilarious. Oh, Remember his first season or two on SNL? How funny he was! Yeah, 
He was yeah. he, this, his little short films they would do yeah. with him, and yeah. yeah, he was a he was funny back then. And oh, Carla DeVito was the uh, from the Meatloaf video. She was the maiden in the Pirates of Penzance oh, that wow. I saw. It's pretty awesome. Nice. It's quite a lineup. Um, so, how much did you love the opening sequence of Bean writing his letter to her? His amazing. with this, the great and the soundtrack that we mentioned by Pino Donaggio is like a Jaws kind of cop. That's great and uh, yeah, and, and and a very and a very stylish opening yeah. uh, for the movie. Yeah, close up on the fingers on the keys, very uh, palpable. Um, really, you know, builds tension, establishes everything really effectively. Um, so, and then. You know, so as it goes along, he's sending her these increasingly threatening letters while she's rehearsing. He's starting to harass poor Maureen Stapleton. And then he starts, like, knifing people. And what was interesting is that he doesn't really kill anybody until the end. He just sort of hurts people with his straight razor. He hurts people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was shocked that Maureen Stapleton didn't die when they cut to her in the hospital with a bandage on it. Yeah, I I thought that was unusual. Yeah, and uh, and and stylishly shot the pretty hilarious YMCA pool scene, where uh, he follows a dancer from the show who's rehearsing with Laura Bacall to the YMCA. He sees that the guy is going swimming, and Michael Bean uh, slips his straight razor into his swim trunks and just kind of eases into the pool. And while the guy is swimming laps, swims up underneath him and slashes his throat. But again, that guy makes it. He's okay. Yeah, yeah, and and that's hard to do in a pool to yeah. survive a, a throat slashing. Well, it's also very hard to like walk around with a straight razor in your uh, yes 1981 yeah. swimmies, um, <laughs> and then the the, the gay bar um, pickup scene, uh, bringing to mind of course cruising. Another movie that came to mind, and this is another movie people love that I always hated: Fade to Black with Dennis Christopher. Yeah, I thought about that too. Yeah, did you do? Do you have an opinion on that film? I I was I thought it looked so good when it came yeah, out. No I, like I was so I fascinated wait. by it. And then when I saw it, it was yeah, it's it's silly. It, it it's not great. And the issue is is Dennis silly. Christopher. It's like you know, Breaking Away is a great movie. When you watch it now, it's like, why is this guy on helium the hero of this film? <laughs> Yeah, he just sort of this like weakling. Hey, I'm right, right, and then he's like, you know, now I'm obsessed with dressing like uh, Kit Carson, shooting people. <laughs> um, but you know, you talking about the gay bar sink bringing the mind cruising. Th- this this movie, you and I love the the Vito Russo book, uh, Celluloid Closet. Yes, yeah, and it and he was really focused on this period of the homophobic movies that came at that time. Cruising th- this one. Um, oh, Windows is Windows the lesbian. That's one? the lesbian one, yeah. Right, and and I it did and and this this movie, I thought about this watching Dur fan also. You and I have talked about. I remember we were talking about looking for Mister Goodbar once, and I was saying it's a movie that's simultaneously feminist and and misogynist, right? And, yes. And and I felt that way about Dur fan. And this is the interesting thing. I I just thought like, okay, this is going to be just the homophobic movie there's no other real explanation for why he's a psychotic fan other than he's gay in some way but it's also this super genuine gay sensibility movie yes and 
and and that and it, that gay bar scene was really interesting to me because it's not the cruising approach. It's right. not the pounding music, the the black leather, the blue oyster bar from the police academy <laughs> right. movies. It's it's a nice looking bar. It's a and, theater district it, gay bar. Yes. Yes, it's a yeah. it's a nice looking bar. It's not a heavy predatory vibe. He goes off with the guy, hooks up with a guy who starts to give him a blowjob and he kills him. And it was fascinating to me because I, I really felt bad for the guy who got slashed. Absolutely. Who like like it was it was interesting that it was a much more sympathetic portrayal of that kind of thing than you would see at this time, which made it kind of a genuine downer. Like, oh, I feel bad for this guy. So, so a weird, a weird uh, combination of emotions there for what's just supposed to be the homophobic slasher movie. Right. So, all right. Well, I, I have much to respond to that. Um, first, I'll, <laughs> I'll read you a quote from uh, Vito Russo in the Celluloid Closet. Michael Bean, the introverted psycho in The Fan, shares with Richard Cox, the first killer in Cruising, an intense obsession with, believe it or not, Broadway musical comedy. By some twisted logic, these shy theater queens suddenly become raving, knife-wielding maniacs. As soon as we right. spot the soundtrack album from Gypsy in their cluttered apartment, we know who the killer is. We get everything but a New York Post headline screaming, Ethel Merman made me do it. Which is just great, yeah. and that's one of the greatest books ever written. Um, it really also, is. I again violently disagree with you about looking for Mr. Goodbar uh, being a misogynist film. I think it is like the, the definitive that I've ever experienced feminist statement on film. And what made the whole thing most interesting to me about picking up this guy at the bar was that he had a clear motive other than some twisted sex cake that he was working out because he kills the guy lights the body on fire and leaves a note so that the police and Betty Bacall will believe that he has committed suicide. So there yeah, is, there that was is, really rough. There is an underlying motive uh, that says that, you know, this is not just about the sexual kink. This is purely um, homicidal calculation. And then, you know, he'll sort of just sort of be this living dead figure, this phantom that can then go haunt her in the theater, which he does. Um, and then I did go down, I did, I went down quite the glory hole online <laughs> researching the Haymarket bar where that was, uh, where that was shot. No kidding. I assumed that was a real spot. Yeah. yeah. What did you find out? Uh, 2015 paper magazine article by Mike, the great Michael Musto, uh, 10 sleazy gay places from New York's glory days, Haymarket 47th and 8th. So right there in the Broadway district. This was an exceedingly real hustler bar in the old Times Square, which featured a bar, booths, a pool table, and mature men spending $20 for a piece of the pie. Yes, 20 bucks. Can you gag? And that's what we see in the movie. There's just sort of these quiet men sitting at the bar, and, you know, they're right. uh, just kind of, you know, eyeing each other. And and uh, so, yeah, nice little tip of the hat to the, the, the uh, hay market there. Um, I'd be I, I, I it's fascinating to me that you found out I normally I, I don't know how I didn't look up the screenwriter on this but you said he did Zorro the gay blade also yes. right yeah yeah and and so I'm assuming this was a gay screenwriter I, I don't know I, I don't know it's not sure, a crazy leap to make yeah yeah what do you know what did he, do you know any other stuff no. he wrote no I have failed failed you and I have failed our audience no it's no no like I said I didn't even get that far so yeah. but but it is like like I said it's the fascinating thing that it's 
I mean, Russo's right. It's com- it is completely homophobic that the really the only he's absolutely right about like the gypsy record means he's the killer, but it's so genuinely gay. Like yeah. like nothing yes. else would star Lauren Bacall right and be in this and be this. twisted love letter and focus on her relationship with Maureen stapled in that way. And right. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And Bacall is, you know, and again, and, and and this was her place in the culture, similar to Elizabeth Taylor. She is sort of this monster figure, you know, larger than life. Yeah. Just, Oh yeah. Snapping off heads and just roaring and just, you know, bringing life and death energy to everything she absolutely does so uh yeah no it's very mentioned the baby jane yeah mold, yeah you know? yeah so the then we get to the broadway show called never say never and uh it's fantastic uh that opening it's great see the opening num- number is shot exactly like the broadway show commercials of the time which made me think, you know, oh, this yeah. is Bianchi's commercial background, just brilliantly conveying that. And it's also what's funny to me is that it looks like maybe there's only like eight people in this show. There's no real set. We don't get a sense of what it's about exactly. Uh, the the chorus boys dress like like uh, diamond studded gangsters, like <laughs> you know, like 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 fancy twenties gangsters from the show Legs Diamond, the Peter Allen show that was later in the eighties. Uh, the opening number is titled "A Remarkable Woman," and uh, but the big, the big showstopper is the last number, "Hearts Not Diamonds." Uh, music by the incredible Marvin Hamlish, lyrics by Tim Rice, and performed as only she could do it while actively smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Betty Bacall. Yeah, yeah, and and it's such a and it was fun to watch this and and be reminded of. You know, reminded of pre-irony. Yeah. Like, I was yeah. thinking, like, like God, this is so SCTV Lola Heatherton. And it made me think about why SCTV ma- made people's heads explode when yeah. it came out. Yeah. Because it was, it was capturing this so perfectly at a time when it was still happening. Yeah. <laughs> without a shred of irony. And that, and, and it, oh boy, is it, it's great. I mean that's it. I mean you, you you've nailed it. It's this is you know right and and, and excellent. It's call the last on gasp. It's, yeah. the, it's the the last gasp of of anyone being able to do this without knowing we look ridiculous right now. Yeah, I mean I SCTV. You're right. I remember like the subtlety of SCTV, which was often lost on me as a, a really young kid, but when I started to catch on. Like, I just remember, like, they did a Three's Company parody, like a one-second Three's Company parody about, like, they, they had to go see a lawyer or something, and or, or, like, Janet's lawyer had harassed her, and, and Jack says, well, what happened? And she said, let's just say he was down to his briefs, and the audience laughed. <laughs> and, and that was, like, I was, like, 13. I was, like, my God, this is beyond genius. Like, how did they do this? And, yeah, and, well, and, and this it, is it, so right it, for that, but it is that. It reminds me of that. I was telling you recently about that Norm Macdonald quote. He was talking about this, this, that generation of Paul Schaefer, right. Michael McKean. Yes. Uh, and he was saying these were guys who no one on earth was more obsessed with that kind of showbiz and no one on earth hated it more intensely. Right. <laughs> that, that they had studied it so intensely and they were also 
determined to destroy it while also, right. you know, living it out. So, yeah, now, yeah, they I, were. I've they were thought good about that. that a lot in terms of you and me. Like, do you think we brought that energy to the stuff we were obsessed with as young creatives? Yes, absolutely. I think I think everybody and horror does. movies and. I think everybody does. It's like, yeah, I, I, think, I can't get enough of this, yet I hate it, and I want to destroy it, and I want to hurt other people who like it. Yeah, and there's the point in your life when you don't, you get really mad at movies and TV shows because they don't solve the problem, and they disappoint oh, you yeah, one week, I'm familiar you fall with that into point. it. Yeah, it's called... Uh, and you fall... Yeah. <laughs> happened to me 51 years ago <laughs> yes and you fall into a spiral of, yes yeah. everybody that's obsessed with this stuff has that you know and 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 that's i guess that's what this movie's about right the fan i mean that's what we're <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and just just one other thing on the homophobic side of it like and i we can talk about this in Durfan also but yeah that's really what these movies are about, by the way. They really are about fear of the audience, and they really are about that power that the audience holds, and don't... The real villain is not homosexuals. The real villain no. is the audience. Yeah. And don't... Uh, don't don't know your place, and don't try to get too out of control, and... Uh, so, so, yes, I think everything we're talking about is, yeah, a natural part of the relationship of the the audience and the artist and and, and, all and, that and in on that note or in that regard you think about you know this is the pre-irony age i mean it's also by even more decades the pre-social media age where the audience yeah. is just they're just terrorists they're just 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 yeah. dictators and and just rule with horrific iron fists or you know yeah they completely took over yeah completely they, took yeah, over you got know the rinse. i mean to, to change the academy awards to have 10 best picture nominees because they were so mad one of those stupid fucking batman movies didn't get nominated for best picture i mean and and that's just one example is, yeah but these movies are about the creators knowing like we know we're holding this violent mob at bay we know yeah. it yeah and and that's the that's the fear at the heart of it and uh yeah so so they knew they knew back then yeah very interesting insight there mr lee um so how much did it crack you up can i quickly say please. not not to skip over any more of the broadway show no. but then bean chases her through the empty theater to kill her and and he said in that interview that she complained he was too rough with her. Yes. It, 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 did you? It, and and you watch the scene, and it's Bacall in heels <laughs> could not be putting less effort into running. <laughs> like yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. yeah. And and he and him being too rough, it reminded me of the hilarious scene of De Niro beating up the guy in the oh, Irish. In the Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> like like this could not be more like. Ooh, ooh, we're having a fight, and you know they yelled cut, and she was like, "You beast! Yeah, you were, right. you manhandled me, off of me, you mauled me." Yeah, <laughs> like it's just, it's really, really a comical uh, uh, final girl moment for Lauren Bacall. And just a, a side note on the Irishman: has that movie really diminished in your mind since you've watched it? It has in mine. Well. No, I, yeah. I, you know, I watched it three times, and oh, if I wow. could, I, I would not. watch yeah. it a hundred times. God, yeah. I loved it. But yeah. no, ha has not yet, but, you know, could happen. You I mean, I'm, I'll never say it's bad or that it wasn't, you know, a uh, major achievement, but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, no. 
I, the last hour to me is great, and the first two hours are just sort of like, okay, yeah, this is the old version of stuff I've seen. Now that's one I have to stop myself from watching because it's like, don't don't do that. There's no need to watch this a fourth time. But, but I yeah. want to. But don't right. do it. Watch something else. All right. So uh, yeah, and then there's the payoff where she kills the fan and uh, with a great speech. You know that scene reminded me of Leatherface and Stretch in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Too, yeah. Cool. She gives him. She compare and what we're talking about with Yon. She compares yeah. him to a terrorist. Yeah. And she says the world is sick of bullies like you, and uh, and kills him. And, and then you get the last shot of him dead in the theater as an audience member while yeah. she's staggering out. Really effective shot. Again, yeah. just like really a stylish movie. Um, but that really drove home for me like, that's right, audience. Remember, <laughs> you know, as you see him alone dead yeah. in the theater, like, don't don't get out of line. Yeah, I mean, and and I when she gives that speech about, you know, you're a terrorist. She's like, who needs you? You're, we're, we're sick of it. <laughs> I, it, right. it made me think of Twitter. I was like, yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> I'm sick of it. <laughs> yep. And uh, I'm glad Betty didn't have to live through the Twitter age that we're all suffering through. It, and by the way, as much as I'm saying it's a very mild movie violence-wise for yeah. this era, yeah. and and it's comical, that scene... I do know why, like, Gene Siskel and people got so offended, because it is really distasteful to see Lauren Bacall get beat up, like, or <laughs> yeah. any woman in their 50s or 60s in this movie. It is really like, guys, come on. I mean, go. yeah, it also, like, is not very effective, that point, you know. No, it's yeah. not. Yeah. No, it is not. <laughs> but, yeah. but I was surprised to see, I just thought this movie was just panned, but Vincent Canby, Variety, it got a yeah, it number good reviews, of good yeah. reviews. Yeah. yeah. Got a number of good reviews. All of them kind of just saying, yeah, it's chilly, but you know, it's a stylish ride, good time. Yeah. Yeah, good, decent script. Yeah. Did you here's here's the one totally bizarre note I saw in the credits. Did you see Griffin Dunn was a a production oh, yeah. assistant? He was a PA. He's in the movie How weird. too. He's a production assistant on the Broadway musical on screen. Crazy. So um Yeah, yeah. He uh he doesn't have any lines, but he like hands Sally a sandwich or something, yeah. I wonder if he's got a story about getting yelled at. I would love to know. <laughs> he's got to. Good lord. Yeah, he must. Uh, and then I had a I had a laugh. Uh, one of the closing credits said additional songs by Louis St. Louis. I was like, oh man, <laughs> wow, that's funny. And then I looked him up, and he's the guy. He wrote Sandy for the movie version of Grease, which is you know it's, it's wow. a great song, totally great song. And then he also wrote. Uh, I don't know how obsessed with the Grease soundtrack you were, but good Lord was I in the summer of 78. Uh, summer of 78, we listened to, me and my friends listened to Destroyer by Kiss, uh, Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf, and the Grease soundtrack in constant rotation. Ugh, how could you stop? No. No, I mean, I, I think I've told you I was... Uh, trying to be a contrarian kid so i didn't like kiss or grease no. and and it was and it was hard because i was like oh this is made for me and i it took years <laughs> before i could enjoy it so uh, yeah man i mean i was turning 10 that summer you were turning eight and you were able to hold off wow yeah yeah man. but grease i mean i watched every time it came on yeah. cable like, i'll still watch course, it uh, you, how many times like oh, you and God, i have yes. seen it a half a dozen times in a theater i think and then with my kids, just yeah. you talking about Sandy, my my kids love to imitate 
Travolta going, Brandy the fool. They, they, they always do the fool. What will they say? Monday is school. They love that. But then he also, Louis St. Louis also wrote the uh, the soundtrack songs Mooning and Rock and Roll Party Queen. And they were part of, there was like a middle, so it was a, a two record set. It was like a middle section of the record, two of the two records that you could skip over because they weren't sung by the main cast. It was either like Sha Na Na doing Tears on My Pillow or these songs and uh, Mooning, and um, which he sang a duet with Cindy Bowens, who, who sings It's Raining on Prom Night, which was another original on the Grease soundtrack. Uh, a little, little trivia here. Uh, in 2012, Cindy came out as a transgender man and now goes by the name Sidney Bowens. But interesting, he spells his name C-I-D-N-Y. So he just flipped the N and the D. And uh, Okay. All right. That's cool. Good on you, Sidney. And uh, so big stand. Big stand for the fan. Yeah, me too. Me too. So let's uh, leap ahead one year. And uh, an Atlantic Ocean over to Germany for Durfan. Uh, this is a film my wife, Rachel McPatton, <laughs> upon seeing it, said, that was the perfect movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, so it, this is a movie that comes out of the same uh, Neudeutsch. Let's try to learn how to pronounce Neudeutsch Vale. Rock scene, German New Wave that produced Christiani F, which is a very well-known cult film. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun to Did, s- say Der Fan, as it was to say Das Boot, The Boat. So perfectly and, and, parodied and, and, on SCTV as Das Boobs, The Boobs. Oh, Das Boobs, that was great. A Bob that Clark a film, sketch. yeah. Uh, did I remember Danny Peary writing about Christian F? Did he write? He didn't write about Durfan, right? No, no, I had not heard of Durfan um, until recently, like within the past year, and probably because oh, I was wow. okay. I was like posting like Hearts Not Diamonds on Facebook or something, and people were like, "Hey, you ever see Durfan? Were you familiar with this before wow. that? Before now?" I- I've, oh, you I were because like... you spoiled the movie for me. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but I don't. I don't know when. I can't remember when I first became right. aware of it. Yeah. So we're gonna spoil the movie. So if you don't want to know, you know, what are you like an hour into the show at this point? Sorry. Um, but you really, if you had never seen this movie, you really wouldn't want it spoiled. It is no, one of those. No, you really. Yeah. So yeah. so hop out. If you don't, know. but I uh, I said to Aaron I don't know, like six months ago or whatever it was, and I said, uh, "Have you heard of this German movie, Der Fan?" And he went, "Oh, is that the one where she eats the guy?" And I was like, "Oh fuck, <laughs> yeah." There you go. <laughs> so that's what happens. Um, written and directed by. But in all fairness, I assume that about every twist. Like I was yeah, telling you right. with the island last, week. <laughs> I just right. always assume yeah. the twist will be cannibalism. The yeah. twist is going to be they eat people. I, that's some yeah. kind of post-soylent green damage for me from as, as And as then, like, every couple of hundred movies, when it happens, you must be so thrilled. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, I knew it. I told you must you. do a victory lap, lap around the house, yeah. Um, Nailed it. So written and directed by Eckhart Schmidt, based on a, his own novel of the same name. Uh, Mr. Schmidt uh, started out, like you and me, Aaron, as a punk rock zine publisher. Uh, the, yeah, and, and by the way, I could be wrong. I I think 
my, my research, I could have messed this up, but it wasn't even a novel. It was a zine article, basically. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I was, didn't know. It wow. was in, it was in a punk, it was in a punk magazine. The story was published. But. This magazine was called The Sow, which actually means the sow, the female pig. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Desiree Nosbush stars as Simone, and so she's this uh, teenage fan who's obsessed with new wave rocker R, who's played by Bodo Steiger. Uh, Steiger was the lead singer of the real-life German new wave band Rheingold, and Rheingold performs the music in the fan, in Der Fan. Uh, Which kicks ass it's amazing. every song. It's so great. Rock. The entire soundtrack, the synth-pop soundtrack is great. Uh, the theme song is Fan Fan Fanatisch. Which also turns up on the soundtrack of Surf 2. Wow. Yeah. That's Is that amazing? Yeah. That's great. So so R, as a character, he brings to mind Gary Newman, as well as M, who sang pop music in 1979. Uh, and but, really, Ian Curtis. I, I thought it was like... Interesting. I yeah, yeah. I, I thought almost almost mostly Ian Curtis, but but yeah, definitely those guys too. Well, it's I, I Ian Curtis. I never thought. I just think of Ian Curtis is living like in a shitty apartment in England, and you know this guy is oh, a not, big yes. rock star. Yeah. Oh, totally not the not his lifestyle, but but the but especially the the kind of you know pseudo Nazi. Well, that, I was going to uh, get to that. He's got the double lightning bolt logo that actually yes. is an SS. And yes. that was yeah, Ian Curtis is one, but also Bowie was there, and then Throbbing Gristle, and so many, sure. so many yeah. folks were flirting with fascist imagery at the time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, his his music and his videos. I mean, it's it's very Gary Newmanish. It really is. Um, and and you know, and and just all your basic post Krautrock new wave. Uh. So Desiree was, uh, she was 16 in the movie. She was working as a DJ at a pirate radio station. Uh, shortly after this, she went on to host the Eurovision Song Contest in 1984. And that same year, she sang on a duet with Falco called Con S. Liebsein, which means Can It Be Love? And then later, she hosted a kid's version of an adult game show called Kinder Ruckzuck. I guess Ruckzuck was the primetime version. <laughs> so the fan, uh, I was thinking it actually hails from a tradition of crazed fan meets teen idol movies uh, that you know, I would say starts with Bye Bye Birdie with Anne Margaret and Jesse Pearson's Conrad Birdie. Sooner or later, a wonderful TV movie with Denise Miller and Rex Smith as Michael Skye. Did you ever see that? No, never. That's great. And it had a hit song. Uh, you, you take my breath away. Um and then I, wow. I want to hold your hand with uh, Nancy Allen and uh, the Beatles, sort of. You see the Beatles on mm -hmm. Ed Sullivan. Um, and then, like, one later example would be Empire Records when Liv Tyler uh, meets uh, Maxwell Caulfield as Rex Manning. And I know just last week it was Rex Manning Day, April 8th. Oh. I'm, I'm, I, I like Empire Records. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Wasn't it? It wasn't the Gin Blossoms uh, yeah. song Till I hear Empire Records? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was always a catchy tune. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got, I've, I've got nothing bad to say about it. I love those Gin Blossom songs from the 90s. That's, uh, <laughs> they always get turned up on my Sirius XM when they come on. Well, a friend of mine did ruin Hey Jealousy for me once, saying this, saying this is the guy who 
waits until you're out of town and then gives your girlfriend the mix CD and was like, Oh, I just, I would just happen to be stopping by to see it. Like, and when I heard that, anytime I hear that song now, I do think, fuck you. Hey, jealousy guy. Well, and you know <laughs> stay, why, stay away I, you from know why I love it then? Cause I'm that guy. I was waiting for you to go you, out of town making the scene. You son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, and then, you know, the movie that it really, you know, the, the later movie it brings to mind is is Audition, the uh, Takashi Miki. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Which, I've got to be the one person on Earth who really did see that in a theater, genuinely not knowing what was coming. Good Lord. Like, ha- wow. like had the one in a million experience of, I was in Pasadena, it was the afternoon, I saw, I was like, oh yeah, that Mike guy, sure, okay, I'll go see that. Did And really, like me and one other dude in the theater, <laughs> and really lost my mind. Like, really could not believe what I was seeing. And you, and you just kept going, she's going to eat him, she's going to eat him. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> totally. So yeah, I, I, this, but this is very similar. This came to mind. You work with celebrities all the time. Have you ever been starstruck? Oh God, yes. Can you yeah, give us some absolutely. examples? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's funny you say. Well, okay. There's. Uh, I always, it always seems to fall into two categories. Like there's the the actresses who are so. Uh, Okay, Angelina Jolie was one, okay? Right. Where where I was like, wow, she has just this incredible presence right. where where you <laughs> yeah, you feel like uh yeah, you do feel like, all right, uh I will uh do anything for you. Tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you know, if you want me to jump off the roof, I will do that right now. And um and and then I've got to say it's a lot of the older uh, the other ones I always think of are Clint Eastwood was one where it was like, holy shit. Like, you just can't believe you're seeing this right. statue in real life. Anthony Hopkins was one that I did not expect to wow. have that reaction. It was like, and was just like, my God, like, yeah. Um, a, a lot of Martin Landau was another one. like that. <laughs> That's a cool one. <laughs> no joke. Yeah. I, and let me, I'll just quickly say, I'm walking into Canner's Deli, and it was it was soon after Ed Wood had come out. Oh, so, wow. you know, I was yeah. really in love with him. I'm walking into Canner's Deli, and he's walking out, and he's tall, you know? Right, he's, like, right. over six feet. And, and I do that thing where I freeze seeing him. And then he moves that way, and I move that way, and hit, and and, it won't, and I can't get out of his way. And he just leans in, and he goes, <laughs> and I jumped, <laughs> and I wow. jumped out of the way, and he walked off. But that Damn. was one where I was frozen, starstruck, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, absolutely, I I have had those moments. The one time, now most of the celebrities I've ever like seen in real life has been through you, like backstage at some award show or something. Uh, sure. I, I did get to, uh, I had a very different William Shatner encounter. Uh, I was up at Howard Stern once with Mr. Skin. I used to go and write uh, lines for Skin while he was on the air from the green room. And uh, Shatner was the next guest. And very briefly, uh, Gary Delabate uh, just sort of quickly introduced us and we shook hands. He said, uh, this is Mr. Skin. He was like, oh, good to meet you. And then uh, I just said, I'm Mr. Skin's writer. And he just kind of nodded at me and walked in the studio. So... <laughs> But you know, great, well, at least great he to didn't see yell at you. Yeah, yeah. Now, unfortunately, he didn't yell at me. I should have tripped him or something. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, so uh, the one time I was really starstruck though was, uh, and I guess I've interviewed a bunch of celebrities for different things, but interviewing Ace Freely. 
uh, backstage oh, at bad. that metal show when I was writing for VH1. Because I was sitting right next to him, and I was just—I really was like, bah, 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 Ace Freely. <laughs> really yeah, yeah, he was great. He was very friendly. We talked. To him. I was asking him about his favorite movies, because uh, we were doing it. it was a tie-in with my book, Heavy Metal Movies, which you should read while you're quarantined or anytime. Um, so uh, let's get back to Durf Fan. The plot is—it's very straightforward. Uh, Simone is obsessed with R. She has pictures of him up all over her room. Uh, interestingly, there's a there's a one photograph of uh, a crowd of Nazis sig heiling, and there's a picture of R pasted over it. So it looks like they're doing that. And that brought to mind the, to me, like the absolutely genius opening credits of Jojo Rabbit last year, with the uh, German Beatles and, uh, song with the Beatlemania intercut with Hitler. Yeah, and I've always loved that. I, I like the Residence Third Reich and Roll was an album that blew my mind in high uh, school. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and, yes. And, yes, completely. Yeah, Still, any, yeah. Anything that points out the connection of fascism and pop music. And, yeah. yeah. I've, I've always loved that. You know, you know yeah. I was thinking the earliest example I ever remember seeing it play out in a way was as a kid on daytime TV once seeing Bedazzled with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And it has that great scene... Uh, yeah. where Peter Cook performs a kind of a very R kind of monotone new wave song, even though it's like 1968 yeah. or something. 1969 or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah really early. But um, yes, always, always heavy when you see that connection. Yeah. And, you know, so Simone is she's she writes this guy letters and so he's all she thinks about. And she's like, doesn't care about school and gets in trouble at school for not caring. I thought her teacher sort of looked like a limp rag version of R also, which was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Something I noticed is that before she meets R, she repeatedly attacks men. There's like the mail yes. carrier, her father, the post office worker, and that's just like over emotional upset. And then the fat guy who picks her up hitchhiking tries to uh, molest her. And then, you know, she's got reason. She, you know, beats the shit out of him and runs away. And they she, all she basically end up is in like a, a, a. Oh, I was just gonna say she's basically in this catatonic state the whole movie. Yeah. And every man's a scumbag. Yeah. And then she will suddenly erupt in lashing out yeah. them, and then she goes back to being in her traumatized right. state. Yeah. Well, then I was saying like they all laugh at her after she attacks them, and then even the one nice guy when she's like um, sleeping in the backseat of the parked car, he just the guy whose car it is opens the door and just kind of says, "Hey." You can't, you can't be back there. And she gets out, and she gets out, and he says, "Could you close the door at least?" And she closes, and she smiles, and he laughs. And so, in a scene that was clearly an homage to George Burns and Brooke Shields, and just <laughs> clearly <Yeah>. influenced. <laughs> That's all I could think about. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Simone will uh, be like uh, Brooke Shields in that scene for much of the last third of the movie. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, it's wardrobe. funny. I kind of, I kind of did think about us watching those Brooke Shields movie, like that. This is this teenage girl who's yeah. nude the whole third part of the movie, and and similarly, not a. I don't, I don't think she's a great actress. There is some, there are some, especially that last third, and the. I was like, wow, she she actually is kind of amazing. Yeah. But it, you do get that Brooke Shields feeling of. This is a young girl being put through the motions. It's not yeah. Isabella Johnny in possession where you're no. like, oh, my God, she's <laughs> yeah. really going through this. Uh, but it is I, I really did. Actually, honestly, she reminded me of Brooke Shields. 
That's true. That's interesting. Um, she's, yeah, I mean, not an actress, but an incredible screen presence, way more than Brooke Shields. I oh, thought. my God. Oh, my uh, God. Entirely magnetic yeah. and compelling. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just carries you through this story very effectively. Uh, the, the, the weird part to me was she's hanging out in the park, and there's she looks at those two blonde girls that are, like, they, hanging I, out by, by the canal. Yeah. And so these yeah. these two blonde girls, they strip completely naked. They hop in the canal for a second and then get back out and put their clothes on. And they're staring at her the whole time. But then I don't even know that they're staring at her. They're just looking into the camera. So I was like, is this some kind of I, German new wave, like, accusatory thing? Like, they're looking at me, looking at them? You know, it could be. the. I saw that he, uh, Schmidt, he also did a movie called... Oh God! In like nineteen seven? No, no, sixty-eight. He did wow. a comedy called "The Jet Generation," subtitled "How Girls Love Men Today." That was a meta parody. It was a parody of the German documentary style. Oh, the schoolgirl sex education. Yeah, schoolgirl report. He, yeah. He, he he did a he did a Spinal Tap mockumentary parody. Of Holy that. shit! So, yeah, so so that struck me as unusual too. Like, okay, is this some commentary on the, or is it just, or are we just goosing it up with more nudity? And yeah, it was it was hard to tell. It seems it has to be intentional because there's not a lot well, to this movie, and every piece seems in place. Except well, that comes well, out of not, and I I did watch the interview on the Blu-ray with Schmidt, which was fascinating because we talk about how much directors are or are not aware of the themes in the movies. You right. know, this guy was aware of everything top to bottom. I mean, and yeah. it had a, and had a really, had some really interesting, fascinating takes on it about, talked all about the, the fascist themes throughout it, yeah. about how people look for God substitutes and pop stars. And then they're disappointed that God spreads his energy to more than one person. I mean, he really, and he was also smart enough to say that he, but that he considered himself essentially a trash or genre film director and said, I, I have thought about all this stuff, but I want to make movies where you, you don't have, you can just enjoy the movie. You don't have right. to have, you don't have to have taken a film class to go, Hey, cool story, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. um, so he was very aware of all this, but it was it was a downer to watch the interview because he he also but but again and I think there there when we were talking about that misogynist feminist thing there's there's really is like a strong feminist message in this movie and he even said he even said he considers himself a woman and can't write from a male perspective right when he writes which was fascinating but uh but but. Desiree Nosbush, Nosbook, uh, wanted two shots in the movie taken out. There were two shots she felt were unflattering or whatever, and he was enraged about it and took her to court over it. And the judge sided with him that she knew what she was getting into. And he's and he's still very, and he's still very defiant and angry about her hypocrisy. And so it is hard not to see the two girls on the grass and go i think maybe he just wanted some more nudity in here yeah you know yeah it certainly could be <laughs> yeah. but if but a fascinating guy and worth yeah. worth watching that interview and then oh yeah absolutely and then as i always say you know i mean it's easy for guys to explain themselves 30 years after they've made the movie 
that this is what well, they had in, t- and- in mind at the time. So. Uh, he's, he's, this guy's pretty, yeah, this guy's not making anything up. Trust me. I mean, right. like, the, and it's, and it's interesting because it's a very punk movie that very came much. out of, the, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very, yes, a genuinely punk movie Re- really. And this is one of the most punk things about it to me. It's about how R and Simone, you know, the obsessed fan yeah. are both products of the consumer culture, blah, blah, blah. Right. But nothing is from R's perspective nothing it's solely about her it's, it's solely about, about the fan. girl yes it totally is like and, and that was really kind of admirable to me i thought like there's no attempt to go he he also as a product of this has this interior experience yeah. like not at all it's entirely her yeah it's interesting i also had the feeling like yeah this it's it's not just punk it's also kind of zany like I was thinking that one of the reasons probably is so straightforward is like this is what he was capable of doing. He was going to tell this girl's story, and I don't know that he yeah. could have he could have given us subplots or anything like that at this at that point. Right. Um, yes. And, and yeah. it works to the movie's advantage. Um, you know, and I've always said that about Reservoir Dogs. I always said like we don't see the heist because I don't think Tarantino was capable of shooting a heist at that point. So yeah, the whole movie uh, works as as a result of that shortcoming of the director turns into the strength of the movie. Um, so yeah, so uh, she goes to see him perform on Top Pop, uh, which is the like top of the pop show, obviously, uh, hosted by a guy who looks like Marty Ross, who is the lead singer of the Milwaukee power pop group The Wigs, who left The Wigs uh, to be one of the new monkeys. He was one, he was the new monkey that wore a kilt. Oh, God. <laughs> I just decided the wigs perform on screen in My Chauffeur, uh, much like the huh. Plimsolls did in Valley Girl. And they're really good. And I like the Plimsolls very good. The same thing, Power Pop. Both those films starred their performing. So just a little tidbit nice. for you along the way. Um, nice. And so, yeah, so she sees him perform this amazing Fan Fan Fanatish song. He's got a bald cap on. He's with bald, naked mannequins. It's is German, you know. I mean, it's the Sprockets sketch. Yeah, not ironically. And then he takes and, her, and again kicks ass. Oh, it's so such great! A great song so great. and yeah. great video. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And uh, yeah, I wanna I wanna listen to Rheingold. Honestly, I didn't get to do that. Oh yet, yeah, I'm I, gonna dig this. I stuff did all, up. all day yesterday. Was writing up my notes on this. So there's there's YouTube yeah. uh, videos of them. Yeah, I'm gonna check them out. And, uh, yeah, so then he whisks her off to his country estate, and uh, right away there's some, you know, quasi-Nazi Nazi art around. There's a giant painting that looks like a scene from Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympiad, and then there's the little statue, like about a foot high, of what looks like the goddess of archery, but she's not holding a bow and arrow. She just has her arm extended, which will prove crucial to the plot of the movie. Uh, when they finally have that weirdly explicit sex scene... It's in a room lined with red, white, and black banners. So those are the Nazi colors. And uh, you have any thoughts on the sex scene? <laughs> it's not comfortable to watch. No, no, that was, and that was, I mean, especially once I watched the interview with him saying, yeah. here's what she wanted taken out. Yeah, right, it, was a, right. it was a bummer. I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, un- <laughs> it was uncomfortable knowing like, man, this, this, this girl really had to go all out for this. And, yeah. and and like I said, that was one of the things that like left a bad taste in my mouth with that interview with the director. I felt like 
this girl worked her ass off for you. Like, and you're complaining about three seconds of footage. Like, come on, man. How about we just go like, wow, can you believe that she did this for this movie? You know, for, for this really powerful experience. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, but, uh, so yeah. So afterwards, I was just going to say, but his heavy quote, his heavy quote was, you know, that, that, that I think is true was that the whole thing was about complicity. And his quote was, did Hitler summon the Germans or did the Germans summon Hitler? Who is guilty? That, that is the question at the heart of the movie that a pop star comes and buys you off by giving you virtual affection and approval. And that that's also what fascist leaders do. I care about you. I'm focused on your problems, not your enemies. Yeah. And, and that it's all about them buying their love. And again, and this movie being about the audience turning on that person and the inevitable disappointment. Just, and as a side note, well, I was thinking about that. Like you never hear, like you can only imagine the amount of girls, the Beatles slept with, but I know you never hear about them. Right. And, but it's like, there's, you do, there's There's one book, hundreds of thousands of women that, you know, can say I had sex with a Beatle and likely it's, you know, it's gotta be one of the defining events of their life. But, but go ahead. What's the book? I don't know it. Well, no, I was going to say there's one Beatles biography. I want to say it's shout that talks a lot about like how much they were having sex then, but you're right. There's a, a shocking dearth of biographies of I'm a woman who had sex with one of the Beatles, which you would think there would be a a thousand of those books. Right. You know? Yes, you're right. And uh, so that I was just thinking about that. That came to mind for obvious reasons. Um, And then we get to, you know, the punch of the movie. Uh, R is acting, you know, like the cold cad that he is. And Simone says, I love you. And ironically, in 2020, he says, me too. And as yep. he's trying to leave, he tells her, yeah, you can hang out here as long as you want. But, you know, the, the, the implication is just be gone when I get back. Uh, as he's trying to leave, she takes the archer statue and smashes it into the back of his head with the arm going deep into his brain. And, yep. uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing scene with the bloody statue arm being pulled out of his skull. Uh, and then he collapses on the floor. She is new. She's naked the entire time. She strips him nude. Butchers his body, grinds his bones into powder, and eats and and, and and dismembers him with this kind of cheesy, creepy keyboard music. Right? They, yeah. Like it goes into like we're a horror movie now, which is kind of like it, which is amazing. You can't believe it's happening, but it it feels a little cheesy. It feels a little Joe Diamato, you know. <laughs> but then, then when she takes the bones and grinds them up, there's no music. It goes really flat yeah. and like kind of artless. And it's really creepy. Like yeah. that shit was really chilling. The I bone like, shot from, from, was bone chilling. That was my note. It, from that, that point on. Yes. Uh, from that point on. And by the way, the best stretch of the movie really, really gets creepy. She goes and scatters the bone, the ashes and um, shaves her head. And oh yeah. boy, I just thought all that last like five or ten minutes of the movie was really amazing and that when i said like she did have her real moments that's the shit where wow she really sells it i gotta say yeah i i yeah i'm with you all the way on that one um and looking at those bones i was like god we all have those bones in our body don't we (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really creepy yeah she's got the she shaves her head she's got the awesome rubber skin (laughs) bald cap on 
something yeah. that always made me crazy as a kid was that they never perfected bald cap technology, probably till like 20 years ago or so. Yeah, it's true. But it is, but it's really effective. It looks great. No, no, it, lo- it looks very cool. And, uh, and she's And she great. goes home and rejoins straight society. She goes yeah. back to school. She goes back to her parents. Yeah. And then drops the bomb uh, that she is uh, four weeks late for her period and that she will deliver R into the world when it's time. So she's going to have his baby, she says. Um, Which, and I was, and I was kind of amazed watching this. I feel like a normal, a very German thing to me where I was watching, I was like, oh, an American movie would have done much more of the push in on her psychotic expression, the music building to a creepy intense, like, can you believe how creepy this is? And it yeah. it doesn't do that at all. It's very flat. And watching, I was like, God, I think this is like a happy ending. Like, I think, I think this is supposed. I think he believes this is a positive message. And sure <laughs> enough, yeah. I'm. And sure enough, in that interview, he says at the end, like, she is. She's going to give birth to him as a better person. And the the censors made him shoot an an alternate ending where she wakes up and it was all a dream. And he managed to get it taken off after, like, the film had been in the theaters for a week. And because he did see this as a happy ending to the movie, which really, really blew my mind. Well, I mean, I would say certainly to Simone, it's a happy ending in her mind. And uh, yeah. And again, you know, because she does think she yes, she will. She will be the conduit for the the god that doesn't fail this time um, exactly and yeah. the he she's success she's done she'll do the hitler done right basically <laughs> yeah. so uh i i'm a stan of der fan for sure stan yeah me too yeah. oh god yes yeah. i i will say this was interesting i had seen the movie not that long ago probably like only a month or two ago so sitting through it a second time it was much less effective it was not like uh, it was a little bit of work to sit through it a second time. So I was thinking, well, perhaps that's why this doesn't have more of a cult following on the order of yeah. Christianity. I was kind of like, you maybe only get one shot at, at Durfan. But it's definitely well, a even shot you, you should seeing take. It, definitely. Even you seeing it the first time, knowing what's coming, you're you're contextualizing yeah. the long, boring stretch of her boring life, which right. is the point. It's so yes. boring. There's not, there's yeah. nothing, you know, but, but yeah, I would see the second time. Once you know the punch, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, you're going to have a harder time. So, uh, double stance this week. No stinks. All yeah. stance. No, Very another good. good week. Thank God. I feel yeah. like we've cracked the code to not watching seven super dull movies no. in a row. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, we shot through that again. Um, <laughs> so next week, uh, just based on an interesting political discussion you and I have uh, had the other day, um, I'm going to suggest we do a really classic 42nd Street double feature that was officially released as a double feature at one point. Uh Guyana, Cult of the Damned, and Amin, The Rise and Fall. That'll be fun. And uh, I, I dare say we're going to talk a little politics next week, which is the, the last thing I have ever wanted to talk about or hear anyone talk about. But, I, you know, that's why I'm going to force yeah. it on our audience. So, 
Yeah, but when it's Guyana Cult of the Damned and Amin, I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, we will make you, it there, work. There couldn't be. Trust us. That, yeah. yeah, you're setting the table well there. I know. We have another. For, ex- for a delicious meal. Extremely. Yeah. Especially in the case of Edie Amin. <laughs> well, That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, you got to play. He eats it. people. Yeah. He eats people. That's, That's the right. twist yeah, in every movie. One, yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. And uh, you have that with a little grape Kool-Aid and uh, you're going to be set. Um a special show which we will not reveal a guest that we are planning. Um, I just got a sad email from Amazon that said my copy of Everything's Ducky with Scuttlebutt the Duck <laughs> could not be delivered to me, so I had to order. A, I had to order a more expensive copy, which I did. So, okay. Well, we will discuss that because uh, yeah, because that's our that's a, a special secret guest star episode that we'd yeah. love to make happen. So, um, all right. Oh, I get to say it this week. Until next time, crack or get off the pot. I'm Mike. Hi, Mike. See ya. See ya, man. <laughs>